Well, you know, Ginny, I really feel like I need to apologise for the last episode on New York because I was clearly completely jet lagged. <laughs> I I was. I have no excuse. <laughs> well. You were doing a lot more of the heavy lifting than I what was for that episode, but honestly, I think I, I've listened to it several times, and and <laughs> I just like the listeners just to ignore my all my word fumbles and and all the errors that we made. But never mind. I must say, one of the things about doing a podcast is it does highlight for you all the things that you mispronounce. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and the fact that I say absolutely all the time. <laughs> and I think I said the word interesting about 17 <laughs> times. So we will get better. Yeah. We promise we will get better. We're working on it. We're working on it. I'm not calling it quits. I'll keep on working on this. I'm working hard on this. As plain obvious it is. Oh, oh, dive, oh, dive in Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. So, Lou, today I'm sitting here with a herbal tea and you've got a cappuccino, but I actually think we should probably be sitting here with two vodka shots. Exactly. Because we're completely immersing ourselves in a Russia. Mother Russia. So, the first book that we're going to talk about is The Secrets We Kept by Lara Prescott. This was sent to me as an advanced reader's copy by Penguin Random House. And it's a book that goes behind the scenes into the writing and the publication of Boris Pasternak's classic novel, Dr. Zhivago. And I knew nothing at all about any of this, so I found it very interesting. So The Secrets We Kept spans a period 1949 up to 61. It took Boris Pasternak more than 10 years to write mm. Dr. Zhivago, and it was finally published in 1957. So The Secrets We Kept has two storylines. One is what's going on in Russia for Boris Pasternak and his mistress, or we would call her his partner, Olga Evinskaya, and her children at the time of writing the book. And the Russian government, or really it was Stalin, didn't want Dr Zhivago published as it was felt to be critical of the yeah. October Revolution subversive. and subversive and anti-Soviet. So Boris Pasternak was born in 1890 and he, at the time of all this, he was married to his second wife, Zinaida. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. And her predominant attribute seems to have been that she was a good housewife. Yes. Which enabled Boris to get on with the work of writing poetry and this novel. And Olga was 20 years younger than him and she had been married and she had children and she had idolised him and his poetry for a long time. She had avidly followed his career as a famous poet and she'd attended his poetry readings and then she became his long-term mistress. She seems wrong calling her a mistress. She was. She was. Yeah. And, and it and, and was contextually yeah. she was his mistress, yeah. wasn't she? Yeah, yeah. So basically what happened is one day Olga was picked up in a car and driven to Lubyanka, the Ministry for State Security, taken down into the depths of the basement and tortured. And this was all done to put pressure on Boris Pasternak to stop writing his novel. 
and Boris was pretty much left alone to get on with his writing. Bizarre. Which is all completely bizarre. Yeah. And from a feminist perspective, it's unimaginably mm. horrendous. So he's got his wife in the kitchen cooking and maintaining his life and he's got his mistress being tortured <laughs> and he's just writing away. It's unspeakable, it's misogynistic, it's mm. everything. So she was tortured in the most dreadful way, and I won't go into details. She was found guilty of denigrating the Soviet regime. She was sent off to the Gulag in the Ural Mountains for five years, and her mother was left to raise Olga's children from her previous marriage. And the story, The Secrets We Kept, elaborates on her experiences in the labour camp. For example, trying to force a pick into the frozen land mm. and barely making a dent and getting calluses on her hands. And it was just grindingly, unspeakably horrible. And she ended up being in the labour camp for three years. She was released early when Stalin died in 1953. Mm. And in fact, I think about 1.5 million prisoners were released at that time. And she was just this thin, haggard shell of a woman when she came out. You can just imagine what that experience would she do. She was worried, she, worried how he might perceive her, wasn't and she? And I think he probably had thoughts that he wasn't going to continue the relationship. But they obviously had a lot of chemistry because they did reconnect. Mm. And, I mean, can you imagine if he hadn't after she'd been through yes. that, that yeah. purely because of him? Mm. She was so loyal. So they reunite after her release and he sets her and her children up in a house in the same village as the mm. one where he lives with Zenaida. She's just down the road. Mm. And Boris keeps working away on his masterpiece, but there's constant surveillance by the government on both of his mm. residences. There's, you know, a dark car at the end of the road with men just keeping an eye on everything. And Boris Pasternak manages to have the manuscript smuggled out of Russia via an Italian publisher who then published it for the first time in Italy. And it's interesting, there are no details as to how the publisher actually managed to get this massive document out of Russia. And I'm quite intrigued as to how he pulled it off mm. because... They would have known that this guy was an Italian publisher yeah. and probably suspected what was going to happen and yet his luggage wasn't checked. No. It's very interesting. I suspect money, maybe money yeah. changed hands. Yeah. That seems to be what often happened. So in succeeding in getting the book published outside of Russia, it was thought that he'd signed a death warrant, not only for himself but for Olga and her mm. children. And then once it had been published in Italy, there was then a strong momentum to publish it to get hold of in it, yeah. Russia. So that's that storyline, which is just fascinating in itself. The other storyline in The Secrets We Kept is the alternating one, which is set in the CIA in Washington, and it's the Soviet-Russia division. And the main protagonists are this group of highly educated women with university degrees. They're sitting in a typing pool working for a male director but many of them are not just typists. Mm -hmm. So the story follows Irina Drozdova, who is employed as a typist because of her Russian parentage. Her father had been sent to the Gulag for expressing anti-Soviet ideas. And so she's the newcomer to the typing pool, where many of the typists are long-term employees of the agency. They've been spies in World War II and post-World War II. Some of them have very mm. exotic backgrounds. And there's a very sophisticated older spy, Sally, who's this very glamorous and mysterious woman 
I think she's been the classic honeypot spy. Yes. Yeah. And she takes Irina under her wing. So this storyline follows the space race and Sputnik and the friendships of the girls in the typing pool and Arena's romance with an all-American boy who frankly sounds like he's one of the Kennedys, yes. <laughs> Teddy the Third. And interestingly, the girls in the typing pool never disclosed to one another what extracurricular mm. spying work they were doing. They were all incredibly close friends and they socialised, but they said not one word about what they were really working on. Yeah, they were on. loyal, weren't mm. they? They were loyal to their employment in mm. that respect, yep. It's very admirable. Mm. And even Sally and Irina, who are sort of working together, really don't divulge no. very much to each other at all. They're individual assignments. They mm. don't talk about. Mm. So Sally is tasked with going to Italy and she unveils herself at the publishing event to get her hands on a copy of Il Dottore Zhivago mm. uh, and she's asked to bring it back to the CIA. And the, the American government wanted to get their hands on a copy of it because they wanted to use it as anti-Soviet propaganda. Propaganda, yeah. So the CIA then get to work having the original Russian manuscript translated into English and then secretly distributed at the World's Fair in The Hague. And uh, it's quite a, a wonderful scene mm. when they surreptitiously find Russian visitors to the, to, to the, the trade, yeah, trade, trade fair, fair and invite them into a, another room and offer them these secret copies. There's 365 copies. So they give them to any willing Russian citizens who are visiting the fair so that they can smuggle them back into Russia and get them into circulation. And you get the sense that word has got out because more and more Russians are attending the fair. Suddenly and... there's people <laughs> sort of yes. lining up wanting to, to get their copy. Yeah. Of course, once you make anything banned or illegal, Absolutely. of course, yeah. it's highly desirable. Mm. Mm. It's just human nature. So I can see that this book will make a great film. It's uh, The film rights have been sold. I understand there was a very impressive bidding war for the screen rights. And it has all the elements that would make a great movie, don't yeah, you think? It's yeah. got spies. It's such a dramatic period in world history and in Russia's history. It's got these gorgeous 1950s girls who I picture being something out of Mad Men with yes, their twin it's got that sets. feel to it, hasn't very, it? Very yeah. gorgeous. There's the CIA, there's the space race between the USA and the USSR, there's the end of Stalin's regime and the opening up of the Soviet Union. So all those elements combined, I think it's, it will make a, could make a fabulous movie. And to, actually, to be honest, to me, when I read it, I felt it was almost like a script for yes. television or a movie yes. more than it was a book. Yes. It just had that very visual drive to it. I agree. Um, so that doesn't surprise me at all that the, there's been a bidding war. Yeah. So having read The Secrets We Kept, I was then inspired to read Dr Zhivago. And I love Russian authors and Russian novels, but I found this one a little bit hard to follow, I have to be honest. I mean, Russian novels all have the added complication that the characters all have a first name, mm. a patronymic, which is from the father's mm. first name, and a surname, and then all the novelists use those three names and then they use nicknames as well interchangeably. So it's always very confusing mm. to work out who is who and who's talking to who. I used the Richard Pervier and Larissa Volokonsky translation. They're the, I think they're the best pair, I think they're a husband and wife team, and it's a very good translation. Not that I speak Russian and I'm in a position to <laughs> compare 
additions, <laughs> but um, but the it, translation it reads, has a huge impact. Oh let's my be goodness, it has an enormous yeah, impact. I remember reading War and Peace, mm. and the book was too heavy, so I downloaded a cheap copy onto my iPad, and it mm. was like I was reading a different book. Yeah, that's incredible because I was reading this really cheap edition, and I had mm. to pick, pick up the. Mm. copy so it does make a huge difference it's one of those things you can tell when you get a bad one yes yeah yeah (laughs) so dr zhivago is said to be one of the greatest love stories ever told and it starts around the time of the russian revolution in 1905 and it continues up until world war ii and it follows a young yuri zhivago who is being raised by his aunt and uncle after his father's suicide and he grows up to be a poet like mm. boris pasternak and a physician and he marries tonya and they have a child and he becomes a medical officer in the army and he meets lara guichard who's a nurse and lara has a very tragic backstory where she was lured into a relationship as a young teenager with the man who was effectively her stepfather. And Lara has married Pasha and she has a daughter, but Pasha is off in the army and he's missing in Mm. action. So the love story is between Yuri Zhivago and Lara, but it's an incredibly sweeping and dramatic tale and it's all set against these very dramatic events taking place in Russia. I just, I won't give a breakdown of the plot here because we would literally be here for yes, days. Yes, yes. Suffice to say, there are Venn diagrams of all the relationships and it's incredibly complex. Mm. But I did enjoy it once I got into it. It is a wonderful tale and also, I think, in some ways better mm. as a movie. Not that I've seen the movie, but I suspect it would be easier to convey the emotion of the love between Lara and Yuri, and that it, it's very visual. Do you, do you think that the idea that Lara's husband is missing, in the same way that Olga in The Secrets We Keep was no longer married to her husband, do you think that that is a way of making it more palatable? That yes. We don't judge the woman because... You know, she's her husband's missing. She might or, be a widow, or she might be a and, widow, and then it's okay. And, so therefore, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. And of course, well, this is all that's never the case for the male characters, though. Mm. It's incredibly misogynistic yeah. and paternalistic, and all of those things. It's we have a very different sensibility, don't we? In we do. Different standards. So Boris Pasternak won the Nobel Prize for Literature for this in novel in 1958, even though he was really much better known for his poetry. Poetry, yes. Uh, And this created a huge furor in Russia and he was forced to renounce the prize. I think the secret police put pressure on him. He was threatened with being sent to the gulag. I think there was implied pressure that Olga would go back to the gulag. All sorts Mm. of terrible threats were made to him. So he renounced the prize. So no prize was given that year. But his son was finally allowed to leave the Mm. Soviet Union in 1989 and go to Stockholm and collect his late father's Nobel Medal. So that would have been under Gorbachev, wouldn't it? I think so, yeah, when everything was opening up. So that Mm. was 29 years after Boris had died. And interestingly, a cartoonist named Bill Malden won the Pulitzer Prize for editorial cartooning in 1959. And he created a cartoon showing Boris Pasternak in the gulag, splitting trees in the snow, talking to another prisoner. And he says to the other prisoner, I won the Nobel Prize for Literature. What was your crime? (laughs) 
Uh, don't you just love it when cartoonists capture in two sentences yeah, absolutely. a whole world of yeah. message. It's mm. fantastic. Well, um, Virginia, I've been reading Alexander Solnitschin's, um One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which is a... Well, I mean, you'd probably find it in the classic section of some bookshops at the moment, but it's obviously was written quite some time ago. Solzhenitsyn was born in 1918, um, so a year after the Bolshevik Revolution, and he was a student of physics and maths and I think went on to be a mathematics teacher. But then when the German army attacked the Soviet Union in 1941, uh, he went to the front and he was twice decorated for bravery. But in 1945, some letters that he'd written to a friend uh, in which he criticised Stalin were found and he was punished with eight years' detention in the Gulag camps. I didn't know any of this. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's and fascinating. So initially they sent him to a research institute um, because of his mathematical knowledge, but by 1950 he was in one of the forced labour camps, uh, which was at the time was in Kazakhstan. And, of course, as a prisoner, he was stripped of his name. Um, he was identified by the number that appeared on the patch oh. on his clothes. I think there was a pa- they used to have a patch on their chests, a patch on their backs, a patch on their caps, and also on their knees. And he was assigned to a masonry brigade and then to a foundry. So this experience that he had in the Gulag finds its way into his novel. So one day in the so life of Ivan Denisovich. Yes, absolutely. It's, you know, he, he has drawn so much. Um, this was his first literary work. And as its title suggests, it follows one day in a labour camp in the life of Ivan Denisovich or Shukov, who is the central character. Shukov is how he's referred to. And Shukov is a peasant, and the the crime for which he's been imprisoned was his escape from the Germans, who took him prisoner in 1943, and then he returned to his own lines. So he was punished for returning to his own lines because it was suggested that he must have been a spy to have been caught in the first place. Yeah. It's just quite bizarre. His fellow inmates in the camp are also there for the most trivial of misdemeanours. I think one of, one of them, Gopchik, took milk to the freedom fighters and there are plenty of prisoners in there who are the sons of kulaks, rich peasants, and that of itself is is a crime. So the book unfolds all the minutiae of uh, Shukov's day. So you're part and parcel of his thought processes and all his preoccupations from the minute he rises to the end of the day as he strives to keep out of trouble and to remain alive. And the camp is divided into different numbered groups. So your group is all in a separate hut and each group is assigned a different task on that day. And of course, you just are so hoping that you're not going to be sent to the, the steps to the exposed part of the working part of the camp. With the freezing cold yeah, wind. minus 20 degrees. And so you immediately have this sense of sort of constant vigilance, you know, strategizing, you know, this high alert, don't you? You just, everything about you when you're reading this book, you tense up, don't you? Yeah. I found myself noticing that I was completely tense. Because, minute to minute. Yeah, it is just minute by minute. And Shukov and his fellow inmates are living by what they call the law of the tiger and that's t-a-i-g-a and that refers to the um, forests of the tundra of the siberia which the law of the jungle essentially and it's so hard to comprehend 
how debased yes they were you know there was so much violence and it was animal survival wasn't it really yeah. uh, and they were so hungry i really felt the hunger because oh, I love my food. Oh, my God, so did <laughs> Just I. the hunger. And, you know, they had to graft and strategize to stay alive, and it's really brutal. And, you know, you just got the sense their sentences were so long and they were just going to stretch and stretch and stretch. And, yeah, look, just unimaginable suffering. But the mastery of the book is the fact that it covers one day, and I think that's for a couple of reasons. You know, on a practical level... Obviously, Shukov's days are going to be pretty much the same. Mm. So, there's, you know, we don't need to have a picture of a week or a year or three or five years because it's all the same interminable day in, day out, stretching on for years. And, you know, you're alongside him every step of the way. But also, um, he's inhabiting a world where to survive a day is an achievement, Yes. It's such an achievement because, you know, you got to the end of it and he's managed to stay alive in the face of huge odds. So you, you really get that sense of it. But having said that, it's quite a quiet book. Mm. You know, you know, obviously what he's doing is quite mundane, but he still managed, I think, Solzhenitsyn to have those little bits of rebellion in there. You know, he, he sews a bit of bread, Shukov, into his bedding. He manages to have a masonry tool that he's secreted away, that he knows where it is. He can go and get it when he's on the work site. He has a little bit of hacksaw blade that he keeps and it keeps his spirit going because Just he's got these little... finding a little thing that might be useful, exactly. a little piece of metal. Or something he finds on the ground mm. or it just, it's an act of resistance and it just gives him mm. sort of hope. And it gives a bit of dignity and that this idea of maintaining your dignity in the face of overwhelming brutality mm. and unpleasantness, to, to say the least, inhumanity, yeah, absolutely, mm. is also part of it and part of the hope that you will actually be quite civilised in your behaviour, notwithstanding what you're facing. And having said that, not all of his fellow prisoners behave with that dignity. No. Um, but, but he certainly is trying to. He's trying to maintain his spirit, maybe, is a better way of, yes. uh, of putting uh, it. it. To me, it's fascinating the way, and I think we did talk about this when I was telling you about mm. my feelings about the book, the way they didn't band together. No. It was every man for himself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, which I found fascinating. I don't know whether that's is the human reaction or whether that was just the way the Russians divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. Yeah. And there was quite a bit of divide and conquer because there's obviously different levels of authority within the prisoners. They call Zeeks yeah. prisoners within the yes. Zeeks themselves. And calling individuals into that office. Yes. Away. And so you didn't know what they were being called away no. for and what would happen no. to them in there. And, and you had a captain and you had mm. someone else in charge. And, you know, there, there was a little bit of banding together in the sense that I think at the very end, you know he's going to bed and he actually gives a biscuit to one mm. of his one of his mm. fellow mates so he has got some human connection with some of them he's quite yeah. close to the captain in his group yeah. I and mean, quite close is a strange way mm. to put it but to the extent that you can be in that environment mm. it does make you wonder though doesn't it what you would do in these circumstances how would i behave i can't even begin I to know. imagine I know. how would i i mean i couldn't survive the the sort of 
desperation and, and, and the- asking the, the guy who's ladling out the soup oh. and a- asking him if he would take the ladle to the bottom so that there might be one little yes. piece of meat in it which of itself is something he doesn't really want to do it's like when someone's having a cigarette mm. and he really wants some mm. cigarette or some tobacco but he can't bring himself to ask because that would make him appear weak yes and then so, he wouldn't be in their debt yes yeah, it's, it's just, it just strips away mm. all nicety, all all civilization, doesn't it? Yeah, no, I agree. It, it's interesting. This book was eventually published in 1962, and Khrushchev gave his personal okay for it to be published. Wow! And it was published in the magazine Novi Mir, which comes up in quite yes, a bit of our literature, yes, which yes. was a literary magazine that is still going to this day. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, extraordinary. Oh. But then in 1964, two years later, uh, Leonard Brezhnev became chairman, or president or I don't know who's the I think I think you're chairman aren't you you're chairman of the in so, uh, the Soviet Union remember. anyway it doesn't matter Brezhnev replaced Khrushchev uh Solzhenitsyn's work became a target of the KGB oh. uh persecution it was withdrawn from libraries and his name was erased from the history of Soviet literature oh. and it became illegal to distribute his works Extraordinary, because he'd also written the Gulag Archipelago right, in the 1960s. Yeah. That was a non-fiction piece of work covering life in the labour camps. So that would have been seen as a huge piece of propaganda. Mm. And, you know, here we are, it's history repeating itself. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1970, which, oh. which he accepted, and that angered the Soviet leadership hugely. Uh-huh. So they stripped him of his citizenship and I think he actually got lucky because he was bundled onto a plane in 1974 to West Germany oh. with his wife and he was exiled from the Soviet Union for 20 years, returning in 1994. Wow. And it, the article that I read said that he was actually deeply unhappy to be in exile. Mm. He was very pro-Russia. Yes. And uh, so that's all it's I have on... Mystifying on one level, isn't it? When your country treats you so badly and they've sent you off and put you in this masonry team in the Ural Mountains, and Boris Pasternak felt the same way. He was threatened with exile, mm. and rather than accept the Nobel Prize, he did not want to leave the country. No, was, deep love for, they for have Mother such Russia. A deep, deep love, love for their country. Yeah, the really loyalty did. is yeah, incredible. Absolutely, very thought provoking. So, what else have you been diving into, Ginny, this week? Um, I have been immersed in Russia, so I've been listening to a really great podcast on Audible called Putin, and it's seven episodes. They're about 20 minutes each, and it just gives a really good overview of how Vladimir Putin came to succeed Boris Yeltsin in 1999. So Putin was this sort of very unprepossessing ex-KGB agent. Mm. He'd been an agent for 16 years. And then he decided to go into politics and became prime minister and then president. But he wore ill-fitting suits and didn't handle the media very well and uh, needed quite a lot of training in how to deal with the media. And his image has had a complete overhaul. So he has a completely different appearance now from the one that he Mm. um, exuded back in 99. So it's a fascinating podcast. And it also goes into the rise of the Russian oligarchs, which Mm. I had never fully understood before. They've always sort of mystified me, but basically I think they were just opportunists who Mm. were very entrepreneurial, who bought off 
state-owned assets yes. and were pretty unscrupulous mm. people. But In some cases, I think they were awarded state assets yeah. didn't necessarily even buy them. Yeah, yeah, or stole them yes. or obtained them through mm. very dubious contracts. Mm. So I'd really recommend that because it's sort of in some ways quite recent history and it's quite useful sometimes to just listen to something that gives an overview and sort of summarises it mm. in a nice way and you sort of revisit history that you've lived through, but it's all encapsulated and, and also put into a context. Mm. So And quite recent history, yeah, isn't re- it, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and particularly, you know, because, of course, Russia is very much in the news now. Mm. So um, I really recommend that. It's a great mm. podcast. What about you? What have you been diving into, Lou? Uh, well, still on the Russian theme, I read an article in the New York Times about a writer and filmmaker, Oleg Sentsov, who's recently been released from a Russian camp in the Arctic Circle. Oh. So to the extent that we think that these uh, gulags or uh, prisons have been closed, and, and by which I mean sort of labour camp prisons, you know, I'm not so sure. So they're probably all just still in existence there, well, are they? Well, the, there were a lot that were shut in the 1990s, definitely. And, of course, for example, I think Solzhenitsyn was in one in Kazakhstan, which, of course, is no longer, mm. you know, part of yes. part of Russia. But there are still definitely in the northeastern area... Yeah. Uh, up near the Arctic Circle. It's They're so still impenetrable, no one would yeah, want to go exactly, there and check exactly. it out anyway. Well, I actually also read an article, uh, it's quite funny, about a mayor of one of these towns up there who wants to create gulag tourism. <laughs> <laughs> so you can go and stay in a gulag and experience the conditions. And, you know, he was interviewed. It was quite funny. You know, really. I reckon people would be up for it. Well, it, it was kind for of... For a day. It was maybe. quite sinister <laughs> the way he was speaking because he was saying, uh, I saw a YouTube video and he was saying, you know, of course we will <laughs> shoot them, but with paintballs. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, please... I have to apologise for my Russian accent, but it was very, very funny that he... It, you almost think... He thinks it's a good idea to make some money out of them, but he's actually not going to make it very easy for them. Anyway, anyway. I must say that's one of the things that I really loved about the Pujan uh, podcast that mm. I just mentioned. It's all the accents. Yeah, I love that you love I an accent. Because I adore a Russian yeah. accent. <laughs> you just feel like you've been just jettisoned straight yeah, into it. because it's so strong, isn't yeah. it? It's such yeah. a strong accent. Anyway, I won't try and do that again. So Sentsov was born in Crimea, but to an ethnic Russian family. And despite his sort of Russian blood and his la- Russian language, he didn't share his friend's hostility to the Ukrainian rule of Crimea. He wasn't particularly interested in politics and he was more interested in making films and about sort of films about the inner life of, of individuals. And his first feature-length film was released in 2011 to critical acclaim and he was planning a second movie but it got pulled because there was a lot of protests going on against the pro-Russian leader of the Ukraine, Yanukovych. Oh, right. Yeah, or yeah. Yanukovych. Yeah. And I think you may remember Yanukovych, he fled to, That's to Russia. Right. yes. And Sentsov says that this period made him realise that he was probably, he felt more Ukrainian than he did Russian. And he also had other ethnic Russian friends who really felt that the Russians were just doing a land grab in Crimea. But they weren't prepared to openly criticise criticise Russia. Mm. And so he helped a lot of them leave. But he stood his ground and he did criticise. Very courageous. Very isn't courageous. It? And he was arrested and he was tortured. Mm. And they asked him, you know, they pushed him to confess to being part of a terror group, and which he declined to do so. So they sent him to Russia to stand trial. 
and there was a witness who was going to give evidence that Sentsov was the head of a terror cell and he recanted his statement at the last minute uh-huh. and, and he said to the court, I gave this statement under duress but Sentsov still got 20 years. Oh, no. And the reason he got 20 years was because he wouldn't make a plea to the judge oh. for leniency. You know, I find this extraordinary in the 2000s. The, the psyche is amazing, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, is. it is. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't seem that there's been that much progress. <laughs> like none. And that's how he ended up in a modern-day gulag in the Arctic Circle. So, so did he end up serving the full 20 no. years? No. So there was recently a prisoner exchange between oh. Putin and the newly elected president of the ah, Ukraine, right. Zelensky, who is yes. all in the papers at yes. the moment because of the impeachment scandal. Yeah. And uh, so he's recently been released and he's been quite openly vocal about, you know, what happened to him there. And he, in fact, made a statement re- recently where he referred to Zolzhenitsyn's in- incarceration and the life of Ivan Denisovich. And he says that the conditions are slightly better now in the prison camps. There's more food and there's less violence, but the system is exactly the same. It has one purpose and that's to create fear. And to break you. Yeah, to break the human spirit. So saying it's better is really not selling it to me, I have to say. A bit more food. And a lot less violence. But that's that's about all. So that's extraordinary, really. Mm. Clearly, the cult of criticism, you know, if Mm. you criticise Putin or the authorities or Mm. Russia in any way, you can still find yourself in a gulag, a modern-day gulag. And then the other thing I've been um, listening to, which is nothing to do with Russia at all, a, a lot lighter, is a podcast called Disgraceland. Oh. And this is hosted by a music buff, Jake Brennan, who has this real rock and roll and dramatic, cool kind of voice. So it's quite good to listen to. And basically the podcast brings together... So is it a play on Elvis's Graceland? It is, yeah, Disgraceland. So you can imagine it is about badly behaved uh, rock and roll stars. Love it, But when I say badly behaved, it sort of brings together true crime with rock and roll music. So it's rather lovely because you can go through and pick the musician that you might be interested in. So you might be interested in Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love or the Rolling Stones Ah. or way back when Jerry Lee Lewis and he tells you all about their bad behaviour and in many cases the criminal activity that they got up to or the people around them got up to. So it's really it's a really good podcast for music and true crime buffs. So um, I've listened to Sid Vicious and Kurt Cobain and I think there was one with Eric Clapton and really, really interesting. Because when you think about it, you don't automatically connect crime with music, but then when you reflect on it, there is actually well, a, a very strong connection. You know, obviously often. a lot of excess. You think of uh, Frank Sinatra. Yes, and, exactly. Uh, mm. and he, he does do Frank Sinatra. Mm. And he does Snoop Dogg. And, mm. you know, there's a lot of rap stars, of course, who've come from abject poverty yeah. and childhoods of crime. And it, look, it's, it's, look, it's good. It's yeah. definitely worth... I'm going to listen to that one listening to yeah that sounds great Lou we really enjoyed today's episode and we hope you have too you'll find a list of the books we've reviewed and anything else we've talked about today in the show notes you'll also find some of the books featured on our Instagram page at diving underscore in underscore podcast if you would like to share with us any books you've been diving into we'd love to hear from you please email us at hello at divingin.com. And wherever you listen to the Diving In podcast, whatever platform you use, we would appreciate it if you would please subscribe and take a minute to rate and review us. 
because that will mean we can grow our audience. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in, breaking up, shaping up.